Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God again. And I just sent out a little notice about the show today, uh, that, uh, and I asked the question, does seeking the kingdom of God cure depression? Can it cure depression? You know, when I first started talking about the contractual nature of government and wrote the book, The Covenants of the Gods, a lot of the people thought that this seemed depressing. <laughs> because... Because it was interrupting what they thought was true. You know, I mean, one of the most depressing things that people have to deal with is the fact that they're wrong about what they already think is true. And they have to change their way of thinking. And that's an inconvenience. People don't want to change the way they think. And they want to think they're right. And they want to continue to think that. Well, that's that's a very dangerous thing. That's how people drive off of cliffs, is that they think that they're right. And they can get a whole society to convince them that they're right because they have to be right because if they're not right then that means they're wrong and people don't want to admit that they're wrong so you you require a little bit of humility when you uh, begin to seek the kingdom of god because seeking the kingdom of god involves a command just before that that is to repent and seek the kingdom of god and so repentance, as we have explained many, many times, doesn't mean feeling sorry, uh, although you might feel sorry at the time of repentance, but repentance has to do with thinking a different way. Well, nobody's going to think a different way until they realize the way they're thinking now is not right. We're back to humility again. So yeah, to seek the kingdom of God, to look this at things another way, requires that you realize that you're wrong in the way that you're thinking now. And so, taking that into consideration, (laughs) uh, what is the third part of that commandment of seeking the kingdom of God? And, And here's the key. And His righteousness, not our self-righteousness. We cannot just think that we have the answer. That we know what is what and how it all is supposed to work. Today we're going to talk a little bit about depression, and uh, depression is an interesting uh, topic. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people see depression, a lot of different ways that people think of depression and define depression. To look at that and kind of define it, because it's not just depression, sometimes uh, people call things depression, which is actually anxiety. To depress somebody is to make them feel utterly dispirited or dejected to reduce the level of strength uh, uh, or activity of something or someone is to depress it but depression itself as a disorder as a disease you know uh, what a, if you were depressed what would most of the people you know tell you to do you know if you were severely depressed or felt severe fairly depressed what would people be telling you to do? Because there's a lot of different things that might be out there. But the most common thing that people suggest or believe is the answer to depression is drugs. 
to take an antidepressant. I mean, it's become part of our vocabulary, antidepressant. Now, there's lots of different drugs that are considered antidepressant. And it's turned into a billion-dollar industry uh, selling antidepressants. And they're, they're not just giving them to older people who are depressed or whatever, uh, or people who just lost a loved one, uh, because they were doing that rampantly everywhere. But th- th- for people, even with this mild depression, are getting it. The depression itself is defined as feeling of a severe despondency and dejection. Of a feeling of being, you know, you have this feeling that um, you're helpless. That's associated with depression. Anxiety is often a part of that. They often accompany each other. And many times the, the remedies are the same. The same drugs are administered. But now there is such, it is such a moneymaker. There are dozens of drugs out there and treatments that are out there that are prescribed by medical doctors. Not by psychiatrists, not by psychologists, but by medical doctors when you come in and... uh there was a doctor, there's actually a doctor who talks against uh, prescribing depressions, and we'll talk a little bit about him. But he he had booked all these different speaking engagements in all these different countries, and he was flying all over, and he had this horrendous schedule. I mean, it was bad enough that he had to talk in all these different places, but he had to get there. He had to travel, and traveling can be exhausting, getting on planes, going through airports, layovers, uh, sleeping in motels. And he wasn't a young man anymore, and uh, so he went to the doctor saying that he had these, you know, the problem sleeping, you know, lots of jet lag, being in all these different countries. And the doctor prescribed him antidepressants. <laughs> and, of course, his whole lecture is that antidepressants are bad. <laughs> they are not the solution. They are actually causing a problem. But what was his expertise he actually simply reviewed the original clinical studies concerning the antidepressants, the different antidepressants, and how effective they were supposedly supposed to be. And now you ask anybody, that who's on, especially people on depressants, they will say, oh, it's great, I couldn't live without it, it's absolutely essential, and is it actually doing more harm than good? Is it actually doing any good at all? The available evidence suggests today, and this um, I'm quoting somebody, suggests that we may indeed be in the midst of an epidemic of depression. And there are a lot of people actually, what I, I will say it, I'll give you kind of a heads up. There are a lot of people taking depression, antidepressant medication, uh, medication for depression, and they have become so addicted to it that they cannot function without their medication. It's just, it is the billion dollar bamboozle of society is that idea that the depression medicine is actually a solution. And people are not going to give up that idea that it is a solution easily. So we, you know, like I do with a lot of things, you know, we're addicted to all kinds of things. We're addicted to our religion. We're addicted to the idea that we're right, that we actually know what we're talking about. I've been on an unchurch group and I I post things once in a while there, and these people, they're like brain dead. <laughs> I mean, there's there's thousands of people there, 
but they they cannot see outside their box. For some reason or other, they think seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness means seek fellowship that makes you feel good. It, it, that's not what that means. Jesus didn't come here to start a fellowship so that you all will get together and resolve your gregarious inclinations so that you feel good. He came to serve. And if you don't, if you're not gathering together with the intent to serve, you're not coming together in the name of Christ. So what we're going to talk today is about this terrible addiction, addiction to depression, addiction to the the uh, drugs of depression. Why are we becoming, why is there this epidemic of depression? Some of it is an actual delusion. There really isn't that big of an epidemic of depression because depression is actually a symptom. There is an epidemic of something. There's an epidemic of people not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but that is leading to the symptom we call depression, anxiety, etc. And so we go for a solution that might be found all the way back in the 1970 Diagnostic and uh, Statistical Manual for the treatment of feelings of anxiety and depression, they're actually creating a greater problem. They're they're creating more and more damage. You know, almost everybody in these shootings, that's been big in the news, these these mass shootings, what they call mass shooting, used to be that you had it required that for something to be categorized as a mass shooting for statistical purposes meant that you had to kill at least four people other than yourself. And they have actually played fast and loose with producing the... Uh, statistics on that by suddenly upping in some areas they upped that had to be six people uh, besides yourself and so then all of a sudden it looked like mass shootings dropped but reality they just change change the parameters of gathering the statistic and if they don't tell you that you think oh well what did they do between here and there and they said well we banned guns or we banned a certain kind of gun and so that it dropped. But it didn't drop. It actually hasn't dropped at all. So these are the kinds of things that certain people with an agenda, and we're going to talk about those people with that agenda, and what's really going on. We're going to take this back to what is really causing the feeling that you're depressed. What can you do about it? And Seeking the Kingdom does end depression. It makes you invulnerable to depression. But you, you're not going to believe that unless we give you some statistical information as to why people think they are depressed and why they think antidepressants are the answer. And are they the answer? Well, there's been all kinds of studies done now. I mean, like people thought vaccinations were the answer. And now there's a lot of people that are beginning to wake up to the idea that vaccinations may not be the answer, especially 60 or 80 vaccinations, and that they're actually may be causing more harm than good. You know, it's like the nobody ever invented a vaccination for the Spanish flu, yet Spanish flu is gone. What happened? We allowed nature to take its course and everybody got better. And the same thing, polio. Do you really need a polio vaccine? Or was polio an aberration? And there was actually a solution at that time to prevent people from getting polio and the, the... the uh, symptoms of of having polio, which is, you know, cripplingness of polio. Could they have done something 
to prevent the disease from crippling all the people that it did cripple. And uh, did they actually, some people actually do that, get polio and not even know they had polio? Because the statistics show when they go back and test people that tens of thousands of people had polio and never showed any ill effects and never had a vaccine. Why did they get better and other people not? Was there some other influence? Well, actually, there was. And there there was a great deal of evidence that this other thing that cost you nothing actually saved you money. Side effects of which were actually good for your health. And it was preventing people from getting the debilitating symptoms of polio and actually becoming immune to polio so that they could not get it. And they knew about it at the time. But there was no money because it didn't cost you anything. Nobody made money by uh, knowing the solution to preventing you from getting the debilitating effects of polio. So they just, so, so they they actually warred against that information. There were actually people who spent money to keep that information from you. And that's just a matter of record. But who's going to tell you? They're not, there's nobody going to buy commercial time on TV to tell you that there was a solution to prevent the debilitating effects of polio and it didn't cost you anything and the side effects to it actually made you healthier. (laughs) So, why didn't anybody tell you about that? Do you know what it is? Well, I'm not going to tell you about it either. I will tell you about it if you join the network and you ask the question on the network, uh, but I'm not going to tell you on the radio. Because I think seeking the kingdom, which is why we created the network, so you could seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is really the solution to almost all your problems. But we're not going to talk about all your problems. We're just going to talk about depression. Which is Now, even if you don't get depressed, I'll bet you know somebody who does get depressed. And I bet you you probably know somebody, unless you live in an Amish community, although there's a lot of depression in an Amish community. I bet you know somebody who's on antidepressants. Even if you don't think you do, I bet you do. Because an awful lot of people are on antidepressants. Uh, it is it is unbelievable the amount of people that are taking those drugs today. So, anyway, in the manual, they that uh, stati- diagnostic and statistical manual back in 1970, uh, it, it said there were nine symptoms, and if five of them were present over a period of time, the patient would be diagnosed with depression. And now what was that period of time? A week? Two weeks? Now there's no real reference to other... Originally there was no real reference to other causes of the depression. And we'll see that that there are a lot of causes for depression that are absolutely natural. But there are solutions that are absolutely natural to overcome those causes of depression. This would have uh, prescribed drugging for most of the bereaved people of America to accept that conclusion. That if if the person was depressed for several weeks, they were to be put on drugs. Well, what if they had lost a loved one? Uh, th- there was no real accounting for the human condition in the diagnostic manual. Well, eventually there was a lot of outcry about that and and people began to add that as a criteria that they had to... Uh, look at the natural process of the human condition. You know, has a loved one died within the last year, not just the last couple of weeks? Uh, and so that now they would take that into consideration. But there were there were all kinds, thousands of people that were put on antidepressants simply because 
a family member died. Somebody who was very close to them, a sister, a brother, a child. And and the only thing they were offering was this um, antidepressant drug. Because they said, well, it seems to work. Or at least they believed that it worked. And that plays a very important part in all this. And we'll get to that. The idea that the depression is the result of a chemical imbalance in your brain, uh, such as a shortage of serotonin, or the lack of one or more of the naturally produced hormones besides serotonin. There's all kinds. I mean, there's, I could go through many multiple syllable words talking to you about all the different... There are hormones that cause hormones to be be produced. You probably don't understand this, but did you know that about 80% of the serotonin in your body at this given time is stored in the walls of your intestines? Did you know that there's actual brain in your intestines with, you know, brain cells and all the same kind of connections that you have up in the brain that's in your head is actually in the walls of your intestines, spread out in the walls, in the inner walls of your intestines. And it's actually what they call the little brain. And, you know, actually, you know, when I was first uh, learning about meditation and teaching people about meditation, I came across some people that actually when they think about things, their the conscious awareness of themselves is actually down in their stomach, not up in their head. You think, well, we think in our head because that's where our brain is at. Well, they can they can actually think about stuff in their stomach. And, of course, you, you go to Eastern religions about med- meditation and they talk about, you know, the awareness and the chakra and all these kinds of things. And, and some of them have some inkling of what they're talking about, but a lot of them are mixing other things in there. And you have to be careful about that mix because uh, meditation can be a bad thing. And meditation can be a good thing. Prayer can be a bad thing. Prayer can be a good thing. Exercise can be a bad thing. Exercise can be a good thing. There's something else that we have to look at in order to figure out what is really going on. Antidepressants in 90% of the cases is a bad thing. Antidepressant medication in 90% of the cases is a bad thing. One is you're not looking at the other alternatives. Whose side effects are good health? And if you go and read any antidepressant that someone is trying to talk you into give uh, taking, you should read the side effects before. You should do this with any medication. You should read the side effects before you take it, <laughs> so that you, because some of the side effects of some of these drugs are are horribly debilitating, and so you should do that. This is a matter of that is good common sense advice. Because and, and I'm not telling you not to take these things. I'm just saying that it's it's ineffective, and I'm not alone in this. There are doctors that say that it's ineffective. So this idea that depression is a result of this chemical imbalance in the brain—it's not your fault. That's very attractive. Nothing you did, it's no weakness on your part. It's just a chemical imbalance. That idea, coupled with the pharmaceutical companies funding numerous studies and then releasing and publicizing some of those studies, some of the results that validated uh, the profitable narratives of this drug solution, has created this billion-dollar industry. I mean, what would you think if I told you there were like 200 studies done by pharmaceutical companies concerning the effectiveness of antidepressants, but they only released 
27 of the studies. Now, they made the studies, so they're a matter of record, and you can find those studies by a Freedom of Information Act. But how many of them were actually published so that you could see the results? Well, see, Dr. Irving uh, Kirsch, professor of, oh, also a, a professor, Andrew Skull of Princeton, uh, along with a lot of other doctors and their colleagues, have gone and examined this whole idea of antidepressants and uh, this idea of spontaneously low serotonin. When they say spontaneously low serotonin, what they're talking about is we're not, we don't know why it's low. We just think it's spontaneous. Well, you know, we live in a cause and effect universe. There is, there's really no, people talk about cancer, spontaneous remission. It just stopped. You know, it just, just went away. We don't know why it went away. It just went away. So obviously because we don't know why it went away, it's just spontaneous. It just happened. When anybody uses that word spontaneous, they're, they're arguing against the universe. <laughs> The, the the natural cause and effect of the universe. Nothing is spontaneous. There is a cause somewhere. The fact that you don't know what the cause is doesn't mean there was not a cause. You know, it's like the Big Bang. Spontaneously, there was a Big Bang. The reality is, you know, that just doesn't even make sense. That's not even logical. Now, there might have been a Big Bang at one time, but something caused it. Something, it just did spontaneously, bang! <laughs> so beware of that word right away. Always question, always wonder. What is the deeper cause and effect going on here? And we're going to get back to that. We're going to show you what these doctors found out about antidepressants when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, is seeking the kingdom of God uh, a religion? Is it uh, is it about religion? Well, then you have to redefine religion, or at least define it, because somebody else has already redefined it. Uh, religion is, by some, is said to be the opiate of the people, but uh, the reality is, is uh, because of the fact that people constantly are redefining religion from what it meant years and years ago, that redefinition of religion, which is an egotistical, we talked about this before, you know, my religion is better than your religion, attitude, is the opiate of the people. Because thinking you're right already is an opiate. It prevents you from the cure, which is the truth. The truth shall set you free. So we're going to talk about what seeking the kingdom really is all about. What what the real definition of religion is. Because real religion, pure religion, is empowering. And it's empowering through charity. Through love of others. It is the fellowship of Christ. See, there's a fellowship out there that's not the fellowship of Christ. But we're going to do this in the context of looking at depressants, antidepressants, and the solution to depression. And we're going to try to dispel some of people's thinking about what is 
really the solution for personal depression. And like I was saying, that there are these doctors out there, Dr. Irving Kirsch, you can look him up. He's got a lot of videos and lectures uh, that run over an hour long explaining what he found out. And Professor Andrew Skull and uh, Dr. David Healy and all these people have opinions. Uh, one said, deeply misleading and unscientific in relationship to this idea of spontaneously low serotonin. It's deeply misleading and unscientific because science know that there is not just spontaneous anything in the universe. There is a cause. Something happened to cause it. It didn't just coalesce out of the ether. <laughs> it Actually, even what does coalesce out of the ether has a cause and effect. <laughs> so, and, and Dr. Uh, David Healy talks about the, this, the basis uh, and, and levels of actual cause of depression. What, what are they? There was no basis. He believes there are no basis ever to believe that these levels actually are the cause of depression, these, these lower levels of serotonin. Because if there are lower levels of serotonin, what caused that? Actually, in comparing some studies, the, the French have uh, pr- produced a drug that actually decreases serotonin in the mind, the, the production of serotonin in the mind. It actually causes it to decrease. So, if serotonin, the presence of low serotonin in in the mind, is the cause of depression, then if you took a drug that caused a decrease in the production of serotonin, that would cause more depression, wouldn't it? Well, they actually use that drug for the treatment of depression. <laughs> they actually they actually have a drug to lower your serotonin levels to improve your your feeling so that you don't feel depressed. Well, how can that be? And it, its results are right up there with the drugs that are supposed to increase serotonin in your mind. And that's the point. is they, There's never been a study that actually proves that the abundance or the lack of serotonin is the cause of depression. So, you know, so what is really going on? And, and I mean, the study is just abs- these studies because there's multiple ones. And again, a lot of them are simply looking at the data already collected by pharmaceutical companies, but publishing the unpublished data about the effectiveness of the antidepressants. And they compare the effectiveness of antidepressants to other already pre-existing solutions that have been used for thousands of years. Because depression has been around for thousands of years. And so you could actually go to primitive societies and they have problems with depression. And they have solutions. And actually you can go to, into some societies and the solution is drugs. <laughs> but there are other societies that don't use drugs. And some of the solutions they have are actually, I would consider to be demonic. Uh, so the, the question is, what... How does seeking the kingdom of God cure depression? Now, I probably shouldn't say cure depression. Spontaneously cause the remission of <laughs> depression. Because we're not going to actually treat the depression. We're, we're not 
we're just saying that what you do will have an effect on what you feel. Because you feel depressed. Ultimately, if you go back to those seven symptoms, or nine symptoms, depending on who you're talking to, there's seven to nine symptoms for diagnosing depression. Basically, they're talking about what you feel. The the anxiety and, and all these things. They're talking about how, and that feeling will cause loss of sleep and all kinds of things. So, it's, it's about depression is really, if you don't feel depressed, then you're not depressed. Now, basically, that's what it comes down to. You know, there was a, a Dr. Joan Cassatore, who's at Arizona State University, and uh, she actually has an organization, uh, I think it's called Misunderstanding or something like this. She's, she stated, we need to stop treating the symptom of depression, which is what the doctors are doing with an antidepressant. And they think that, you know, they're treating the symptoms. And they're actually, in reality, if that's true about the serotonin, which it appears to be based on the studies that they've made, comparing the drug that lowers serotonin to the drug that increases serotonin, and they find that they have the same results in curing depression. I mean, right down, no significant difference whatsoever. And, you know, it's like 63% improvement in some cases. There's all kinds of parameters to this, and I'm not going to go. You can go look at the videos. We're going to actually post them eventually. Uh, but uh, the problem is there's something else that produces almost that same result. And they used it in the clinical trials. And it's called the placebo. And this is how Dr. Irving Kirsch got interested in all this is because he's fascinated with placebos. And they are. I've been fascinated with placebos, but I didn't have the time or the know-how to take all these this data and look at the statistical results. And that, of course, is what he's doing. And uh, it takes a lot of time and energy and everything. And now he's written a book about it. But he gives a lot of videos where you can go and look at the videos. And they're very convincing. And um, he's not real popular amongst a billion, multi-billion dollar industry of antidepressant medications. But uh, Dr. Joan uh, Cassatori, she had depression. And uh, she said that we must consider depression in the context. She had depression. I think she lost a child in the womb. And, you know, like all the, all the people that talk, are promoting abortion and saying abortion is okay... How many women have an abortion and then later on begin to think that, wait, did I kill my child? And then, I mean, if you got millions upon millions of women having abortion, a lot of those are later on going to realize, I killed my child. I killed a child in my womb. They're thinking depression is going to set in. There's a cure for that too. And it's back to that whole first line of John the Baptist Jesus Christ, repent, think a different way, and seek the kingdom of God. And all sins, all traumas will be forgiven. And you will be released from those things. But you have to really do that. You have to really seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the unchurch who thinks seeking the kingdom of God is thinking, feeling, seeking a feeling of fellowship and self-righteousness are the same thing, have a lot to learn. They are not the same thing. Dr. Joanne uh, Cassatore thinks that the entire system needs to be overhauled because it's unscientific. They do not consider the depression in the context of the individual's life. 
and they need to do that. But so so you get lots of different people coming at this that there's something wrong with the antidepressants, something uh, uh, wrong with the overuse of them. And Dr. Irving Kerr, she goes through detailed examination in his studies uh, of drug company failure to publish their own results. He's not going out and doing a test himself. He's taking their results and looking at all of their results. You know, this whole idea of the placebo you know, the, and how the placebo has this greater effect. And, and they use this in, in studies all the time. What, what have I told you? Now, what they do is they take a, they take a, a large group of people, they divide it in half, they don't tell who's in what half, and they tell them that we're going to give some of you because you're a part of a test, it's not costing you anything, you might actually even get some money. And that's the way they gather these people, they offer them, you know, money, and so the people, it's not the best way to do the test because you're going to get a certain kind of people who want to get money for doing the test. And they're also maybe wanting to tell you what you actually want to hear. But they have the problem. And depression, though, can have a myriad of causes. So they tell them that we're going to give some of you a placebo and some of you are going to get the actual drug. And they tell you what the side effects of the drug might actually be and some of the things that you might experience. So they, everybody can think that, oh, I may be getting the drug. This may be helping me. And they're going to see a placebo effect where people just get better because they're taking what they think might be a drug. You're going to get a result. And so finally, when you want to find out what was the result of the actual drug, you compare the results from everybody, all those who got the placebo and all those who did not get the placebo. And then you subtract those results of the people who got the placebo and the remainder is the actual effect of the drug. Because everybody supposedly thought they were getting the same thing. Well, if you only have a 20% improvement between those who got the placebo and those who got the drug, the drug's not very effective. But then if you cut out every study that shows either no or a negligible improvement, then you can make the improvement look even bigger. Now, the the problem is, is that, and, and I have this, we'll, we'll publish an article on it, this whole idea of placebo, is that there are certain ailments that you can have that uh, lend themselves to the placebo effect more than that. If you get a broken arm and somebody gives you a placebo, chances are it's not going to heal your broken arm. Because <laughs> you know, that's actually, you know, you can see that's broken, it's crooked. It's not supposed to be that way. But other ailments lend themselves, you know, like depression and anxiety, lend themselves to thinking that if I take this pill, it's going to make me feel good. It's going to make me better. That the, I, the whole idea of depression and anxiety is that you don't feel empowered. You feel like you have no control. You feel like this is something that's, that's happening to you. And you can't overcome it of your own. You can't pull yourself up out of your depression. And often that is the case. And somebody gives you a pill and says, this will make you better. And you believe him. He's wearing a white coat. That placebo effect is going to be much, much stronger. And it's amazing when people study all this that they find out that this uh, placebo effect is very strong, not only in things that are obviously, you know, a mental feeling issue, depression, anxiety, but they also see it has a tremendous effect in other ailments such as irritable bowel syndrome, general pains, back pains, neck pains, 
uh, even Parkinson disease and asthma, that there's a larger than normal placebo effect in people who you are testing a drug for that have these ailments. Because Parkinson, you know, I'm not saying it's all in your mind, but it's definitely mind-connected. Asthma, definitely mind-connected. Many irritable bowel syndrome situations are mentally connected. Why? What did I tell you a little bit ago? That the little brain is in your bowels. You actually have a brain in your bowels. And just to give you, in, in the random spontaneity of evolution, without any intelligent design, somehow or other, your body realized that I have to create a brain in my intestines so that if I'm injured, I get a swelling in my spinal column and it cuts off the signal and I can't walk for several weeks and everything in my lower body is not connected to my brain, my body will continue to work. Why? Because it's got a brain in your intestines <laughs> that continues to function. And this has actually happened many times. People get an injury, they get swelling in the brain, they can't walk, and eventually they learn to walk again and they get better, and they get 100% better. Well, they would have died if they had to get signals from their brain in order to make their intestines work. Because their intestines kept working. Why? Because there's a brain in your intestines that is independent of the brain in your head. (laughs) And it actually affects a lot more than just your intestines. I mean, your heart's still beating. What's telling it to beat? (laughs) So that. You have, your brain isn't quite like a lizard or a reptile or something that might be all over its body or a dinosaur, but you have more than the brain in your head. Um, we want you to start using them all to the best of your ability. And that is actually part of the, what you might want to call spontaneous remission of depression. <laughs> so anyway, so we've got doctors saying you have to have the system entirely overhauled. you got doctors examining the results of the medical society's testing of their own drugs and they're finding this huge placebo effect that is actually accounting for most of the improvement, uh, the vast majority of the improvement, when you take these expensive drugs that, uh, that they're prescribing. Well, when they did the tests, many of these tests, they actually, what they did is for the first two weeks, they gave a placebo to everybody And everybody who was showing an immediate improvement, they didn't tell them they were getting a placebo, that were showing an immediate improvement, were people that are more susceptible to this placebo effect. So they removed them from the study. (laughs) And even though they removed them from the study, in the final study, the placebo effect group was only like 20%, in some places, only 3% better then the plus, you know, the the uh, the actual drug group is only three percent better than the placebo group, even though they remove most of the people that are immediately subject to a placebo from the test. Well, that's that's creating a bias in your test right away, and it still didn't show much results. And it most of the results that it showed for people who showed a, a improved results from the use of these antidepressants were in the people that had extreme cases. I mean, ultimate, the the highest uh, symptomatic, debilitating depression. The the more you got, so they actually removed the, a lot of the studies from the people who had mild depressions, medium depression, even strong depression, 
because they showed almost no effect different from the placebo from the actual drug. But anyway, he can go through all those statistics. He's got charts. And like I said, we'll post this eventually. But the point is, is that the studies are showing that the drug is negligible. You can go look on the bottle of your drug and see the side effects from these. Just to give you an idea of, uh, there's a thing called placebo by proxy. You can actually give medication, placebo medication, to your pet and he will get better. Well, why in the world is that? He doesn't know that he's on a placebo blind, double blind trial. Why would he get better with a placebo? Because your pet is tied more with what you think (laughs) than you think. (laughs) That because you think, they say clinicians, uh, family members, their feelings about the prescription will actually create a placebo by proxy effect in patients as well as pets. That if you your confidence actually contaminates the mind of your uh, the patient, your loved one, or whatever. And you know this. Your positive outlook, your encouragement with your family member is important to him getting better. If you're if you're thinking he's not going to get better and you come in, oh, it's too bad you're going to die, Steve. You know, you're just going to bring depression in. You're you're actually causing him to get worse. You know that. I mean, that's just common sense. So, you know, you try to be cheery, you try to be positive, you try to get him thinking positive or her thinking positive. And it's the same way, you know, like fluffy, this will make you all better and you're petting fluffy. <laughs> And you're not worried and the, and the dog sees or the cat sees you're not worried and so the, the cat actually responds to that because your, your courage and your outlook actually gives it courage and outlook and it gets better. It has nothing to do with the medicine. It has to do with what you think. But anyway, in order to get through some of this because this is going to take a little while but, uh, and, and we're going to get into the actual spiritual side of this and what, and how this relates to what Christ was saying all along. And John the Baptist was saying, and Moses was saying, and Abraham was saying all along, and how it not only can cure depression, but it can cause spontaneous remissions uh, throughout your life in all kinds of ways and all kinds of problems. They compared simply taking an hour of aerobic exercise daily and compared to that to people who are on antidepressant medications. And the results, I mean, no placebo, just these people are on medication, so they know they're taking a pill. And these people over here are exercising for an hour. And you can, I mean, some of the elderly people could actually exercise while sitting down in a chair, but they're exercising for an hour. Their results were almost identical. No significant difference from the people that were getting antidepressants. But the side effects... Of exercising for an hour, decreased anxiety, improved sleep patterns, increased energy, elevated moods, increased libido. A lot of these medications decrease libido. Uh, provided weight loss. <laughs> I mean, the list, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, it enhanced memory. Uh, <laughs> it improved the ability to focus. Because you exercise for an hour. And we're not talking about out there running a marathon. We're just talking about exercising for an hour. And the long term, even after the exercise stopped, the long term effect 
of this one-hour exercise for several weeks or months remain the same while coming off of the drug, the antidepressant, was actually frightening and damaging and uh, traumatic. And so, you know, depression and anxiety create their own hell. And people who are suffering from depression and anxiety, it's like being in hell. They are helpless. They have fallen into this pit of depression and anxiety. Nothing they do seems to get them out of it. And it is hell to them. I am sympathetic to people that have this depression and anxiety. I do not think it is spontaneous. I think there is a cause. And I think that depression and anxiety is an effect. But the problem is the hell is a habitation of the soul. And to get out of hell, we need to look deeper at the cause and effect. Leaving hell is always harder than getting in. And if you think antidepressant drugs are helping you get out of hell, relieving your depression and anxiety, then why is withdrawal? When you stop taking the drug, people feel that immediately and they think they have to take it again. They're addicting you to a billion-dollar industry. But more on this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom next. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we're going to try to show you some alternatives to taking antibiotics and antibiotics, antidepressants. We could actually show you some alternatives to antibiotics too. But uh, not that we're telling you not to take any of these other things. We're not. We're telling you to take a look and find out what is actually spontaneous and what has actually got a cause and effect because nature is subject to cause and effect. That is the universe in which we exist. Even in the multiple dimensions that uh, physicists are now believing that they're discovering, there is still cause and effect. And so, what is the cause? What is the effect? You lack serotonin, there is a cause. Prohibiting that effect of having more serotonin. It is ir- irresponsible to prescribe 20 milligrams of a drug which increases to 30 milligrams and eventually to 80 milligrams without somewhere along the line trying to find out what was the original cause of the lack of serotonin. Now, like I've shown you already, and you you can go and and look these things up, that there are uh, reasons to believe that serotonin, and there are doctors who believe this, that serotonin the absence of high levels of serotonin or the lower levels of serotonin in your body are not the cause of depression. You know, uh, that's just a reality. They're, they're, although a lot of people want to argue it, but they, they're going to need to come up with facts. They're going to need to come up with studies. And they can't bury the majority of the studies and, and tests in order to come up with a conclusion that fits their narrative that is going to make them billionaires. That it just doesn't make any sense. I'm not making any money by telling you to take a deeper look at the problem. Is the pre- depression therefore a result of a chemical imbalance? Are drugs really the solution? Well, there's a great deal of evidence that they're not only not a solution, but they're causing all kinds of side effects and harms. People 
who want to do something about the mass shootings since almost every single mass shooter was on these drugs and the side effects to these drugs include suicidal uh, thoughts and aggressive behavior, there may be a connection between the drug more so than the gun since there's like 30 million people or there's hundreds of millions of people that have guns that are not going out doing mass shootings. Uh, you might take a look at other causes that are bringing about this effect. But what is the cause of this supposed chemical imbalance? It, and if there is a cause to the chemical imbalance, is it the imbalance that is giving you the depression or is it the cause that creates the balance, imbalance? Because like I said, if you give them a drug that decreases serotonin, they, they have the same improvement as the drug that increases <laughs> the serotonin. Now, I, I don't know, the first one to admit that everybody's a little different. Everybody's problem is a little different. And everybody's reaction to drugs or other alternatives other than drugs will be different. But there is a common pattern. And I want you to take a look at that common pattern in relationship to your own life, in the context of your own life. Uh, and it's good to look at that pattern with multiple people, with other people. Everybody is concerned about your problem as much as you are concerned about your problem. That's one of the things I noticed on this one unchurch group is that everybody is not looking at what everybody else says. Somebody says something and everybody has a response, but they're not reading what everybody else says. Because this is what Facebook is, is that somebody says something, you like it, and you have, but you don't care what anybody else says. You don't go down and read the other people's comments. Uh, and it creates a virtual fellowship, a virtual camaraderie. It's not real. It's just in your head. And people are having relationships, you know, online. Uh, well, everybody can be better online. Not everybody. There's a lot of trolls that aren't better online. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the reality is, is that it's not a real relationship. You have to sit down with real people. People, you know, the, there are doctors who have prescribed antidepressants, but at the same time they dis, uh, prescribed antidepressants, they said, I want you to get into a group. I want you to sit down with other people who have the same problem as you do. Depression. Now, they may have it for different reasons, but they're feeling the same symptoms. And they sit down together. And, and one group talks about when they sat down together for the first time, they didn't join a group that already existed. They all came and joined a group at the same time, all having this feeling of depression and anxiety. And if that wasn't an anxious moment, <laughs> nobody could talk. I mean, they shook uh, they trembled at the idea of speaking in this group. And there was long pauses of silence <laughs> as they were in there. But a couple of years later, they've, they're gardening together. They're doing all kinds of things together. The commonality of their problem created a relationship. Well, the common, al- commonality of the problem of mankind is the same as it's been for thousands of years. So there is an actual value in congregating. We've written articles on why to congregate. If you're depressed, congregate. And there's an art to congregating together and coming together. Because if you're going to come together in Christ's name, you're as concerned about your neighbor's depression 
as you are about your own. You're concerned about your neighbor's irritable bowel syndrome or Parkinson's as you are about your own. You're concerned about the their family members as much as you're concerned about your family members. That approach in itself has a hugely empowering placebo effect. You haven't even done anything. You've just come together caring about somebody else. In almost every case, people I, I know that have depression problems, they have selfishness problems. They they don't think they do. They uh, sometimes. Sometimes it's it's undeniable. But that you know, selfishness has many different levels. But they are not gathering together to help others. They love to be helped. They love to be labeled as the one who needs help. They want to say, oh, I'm strong, I'm trying, you know, and everything, because they want to be thought well of. They need other people to think well of them in order to do ward off the depression. Now, they're also taking their drugs at the same time. But uh, the reality is that this problem goes way, way deeper. And depression actually leads to all kinds of other, uh, depression and anxiety will lead to all kinds of other actual physical ailments. So if exercise can produce the same result as taking a, one of these powerful antidepressant drugs, it's a longer lasting result. It has less side effects that are detrimental, uh, almost none. I mean, probably the worst side effect that you will get from an hour of exercise is you'll be a little stiff in the morning. <laughs> so, uh, But you'll have all kinds of other positive uh, side effects that weren't your goal, but they actually improved your life. They improved your appetite. And so now, if it improves your appetite, what about food? What you eat? Food is supposed to be the best medicine. Food is a medicine. Well, not only is food a medicine, what you're eating, the kinds of food you're eating, and if you're shopping in a grocery store, most of the foods are probably bad for you into one degree or another, but, I mean, that's where you have to shop a lot of times. But there are wiser choices than many of the choices you've been making. But the positive effect on you personally by taking control over what you eat and actually expending energy with the idea that eating this way instead of the way I have been eating will improve my health has a tremendous placebo effect, as well as having the side effect of getting better nutrition into your diet. You know, I know people who will only eat organic because they believe if I only eat organic, uh, my health will improve. And if it, it, what happens is a side effect of that is that if you have to eat something that's not organic, you think it's poisoning you. Well, the placebo effect works in reverse. If you think you're doing something that is harming you, whether it's harming you or not, it may cause the symptoms of being harmed in you because your mind and your attitude has a tremendous power over you. Uh, I can t- tell you there's fascinating stories about people who are kept in prisons and had to eat just absolutely horrible stuff and their health improved. Well, and somebody else eating the same stuff, they died. How How is that possible? Because there's a lot more going on in us than what we think we think. <laughs> so, so personal journey of awareness into yourself and what you're doing, taking control back in your own life. I remember when I used to, my kids would get uh, ill and the colds would come around and, and so all the kids would have their little cold and be sick and have headaches or whatever it was. 
they would I would I would make something for them before they went to bed. I, they called it a concoction, and I would sit there and they I would let them see me pouring it together and putting a little cinnamon in it and stirring it and holding it up to the light, uh, and it it always cured them <laughs> because they saw somebody cared. Somebody was doing something that they believed in that person, and they were actually getting better through natural process. But I was helping them with their problem of feeling like they were powerless under the control of this germ that was making them ill, and they couldn't do anything about it. And then their dad comes along and says, let's do something about it. Let's do this. Let's do that. I played the witch doctor but a witch doctor of love. And and what I was putting together probably had some medicinal effect. It helped them sleep a little bit better. But I, I still to this day believe that mostly them, I could see them intently watching me and I, I played the drama and they got better. And I, I believe that that positive outlook that this is going to help, help them overcome that feeling of helplessness against the germ. Uh, and so, there's a lot to that, you know. The the kid's crying, he hurt his knee, his mother says, well, let me kiss it, make it better. He kisses it, he runs off like nothing happened. He was crying a minute ago, the pain was overwhelming, but his mother helped him deal with the pain. We see that every day. That's what congregations should be doing. Helping each other with the pain. Now, I can guarantee you, you'll have people in there that abuse your care for them because they want to be feel want to feel like people care about them, but yet they haven't yet learned to care about other people. You have to be patient with that. Love them anyway. Help them learn to love others. That is the biggest cure that will bring more spontaneous remissions of problems of disease and depression than anything else. That mutual positive outlook. That's what happened to all those people who had depression finally began to talk. They began to share. They found a commonality. Without judgment. You're depressed? I'm depressed. You should be as depressed as I am depressed. But they began to share their burdens with one another. And I'm sure some people fell away. But others began to care about one another. They began to sympathize for somebody else's problems other than their own. And then they, like I said, they started gardening together and doing all kinds of things together. They started having that camaraderie of fellowship and the depression disappeared. It's like the, all those people who are schizophrenics who were released on the streets and they come back years later and half of them are completely cured of schizophrenia. And so they started examining why are they, why, where did the schizophrenia go? How did they cure themselves of schizophrenia? What was it? What was the commonality? They got everybody who got off of the drugs, almost everybody who got off the drugs, or at least everybody who showed, everybody who showed absolute spontaneous remission, we'll call it. We can't say cured. Spontaneous remission of, of uh, schizophrenia. The one commonality they all had was they got off the drugs. Now, some people got off the drugs and got back on the drugs and had problems and all kinds of stuff. So getting off the drugs alone was not the answer. There was actually, if the deeper they looked at the human condition, the more they found that there was other things involved. And one of the big things they found is that almost in every single case, these people had a friend or someone they befriended or befriended them or interacted with them who was not judgmental, 
who just helped them out, was patient with them while they were coming off the drug and and overcoming the side effects of withdrawal. And that, that stable friend, sometimes it was a relative, sometimes it was a storekeeper on the street who they would go by and they would see that storekeeper every day and they would greet them and they would, you know, if when when they needed a place to stand out of the cold for a while, the storekeeper allowed them to stand in there, treated them okay, didn't condescend, just was nice to them. And they started coming out of their shell. And they started coming out of their neurosis. And then before you knew it, you know, being around that person who was a nice storekeeper and helpful and and patient and being around the spirits that dwelt in him, the spirits that were driving them crazy went away. They were able to leave hell and because somebody offered them a helping hand. This is what Christ did. We were all in hell. We were all in sin. We were all in trauma. And Christ comes along to give us a hand up. But now we don't want to do what Christ did for others. And yet we say we believe in Christ. We don't gather together to help others to become... We want to be self-reliant. But we don't want to help others be self-reliant. We want to be loved, but do we want to love others? Here's the spontaneous cure. (laughs) Is that you have to start caring about others as much as you care about yourself. I know somebody who started helping somebody else with their problem. And and it took a lot of their time. But they wanted to do it because they really cared about that individual. It was a family member. And they started caring for that individual. And then they woke up one morning. They realized they used to have a problem like that. But somehow or other it went away. You know, a problem, you know, like they noticed they came across somebody who had a problem they used to have. And all of a sudden they they realized, I used to have that problem. What did I do to cure that? Uh, how, why did I, why don't I have that problem? <laughs> they didn't know. They Their attempt to help others spontaneously cured their separately unrelated problem, supposedly unrelated. Because they began to practice unselfishness with somebody that they cared about. But you want real grace. You want a lot of grace. You want more grace. You want more spontaneity and your cures. You have to care about people who don't care about you. Because <laughs> what grace is there if you only love those who love you? So we're asking this question. Are drugs the solution? Well, if religion is the opiate of the people, pure religion is the solution. So if we want to call pure religion a drug, that is the solution. And it will bring a balance to you, physically, spiritually, emotionally, that you cannot produce yourself because it's coming from somewhere else. Where are you getting your drug? What drugs are you getting? Are you getting the little pill that's supposed to make you bigger, smaller, feel better? Or are you getting, swallowing the pill that Christ said to swallow? Repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Love one another. Forgive one another. So if external serotonin can cure problems, why is the internal serotonin not enough? Is it the the lack of serotonin? I mean, if I went down the list of all the chemicals that your body is producing, I mean, the, I mean, you think all the pharmaceutical companies in the world, 
don't produce the variety and complexity of chemicals your body produces every day so that you're alive every night. There are millions of processes, billions of chemical processes going on in every part of your body and all your cells, the billions of cells in your body constantly going on and you have no knowledge of it. You don't have any names to put on all these chemicals and it's going on in you and you think what you think doesn't have an effect on your body. You think what you do daily doesn't have an effect on that process, that chemical process in your body. You think that what you eat does not have an effect. And what you eat isn't just what goes in that orifice you call a mouth. It's what goes in your ears, in your eyes. It's your, the context of your life. What you're, what you're taking in. And what you're giving out. Christ has a, Christ talks about your bowels. Doesn't everything come out in the drought? It's not what you take in that is the cause of your problem. It's what you give out that is the cause of the problem. Because you actually should be able to take in the hate and the, and the problems of your neighbor. Receive, you know, when they're telling you that, you know, I have this problem, that problem, that problem. I mean, psychiatrists have one of the highest numbers of suicides among psychiatrists, probably because some of them are treating each other <laughs> with antidepressants. But why are they getting so depressed? Because they have to deal with other people's problems. And they're doing it for money. They're mercenaries. And although I'm sure that some of them are doing it, the better ones are probably doing it because they actually do have a caring nature. But uh, the reality is, is that what you're receiving and hearing from other people this that they're when they dump their garbage on you and people are always doing this you know uh i see it with other people in our congregations and and in my family some people are always dumping on certain members of my family their problems and uh but the key is what you give back to them and why you give it back to them because you're supposed to turn their the evil that's in their problem into good. And that's, again, back to that art and skill of congregating together. You have to be devoid of judgment of others and let God be the judge. You have to be a conduit of His Holy Spirit. And everything that comes in, it doesn't come in and poison your your body. How could those guys in prison eat the same stuff that other people are eating? Those people are dying and they're actually doing really good. They should have died too, but they didn't because the the spirit that dwelt in them was filtering out the toxins and passing out of their body and turning the toxins into healthy stuff in their body. They weren't eating organic except when they ate the maggots in their rice. <laughs> Those were probably organic maggots. But they were doing well. Because of another spirit that dwelled in them and affected every cell of their body. Your body will dispel all kinds of poisons and toxins. Your spiritual body will dispel all the toxins that other people try to put in you. If you let the spirit of God dwell in you. Because the spirit of God can take their evil, their garbage that they're dumping on you. And he can turn it to good and you can give it back to them. And now what's going to happen if they don't love the light? 
like cockroaches, they will go away from you. They will flee you. They will make up all kinds of excuses why they have to flee you. Now, we still love them as they're fleeing and hope that they repent and come back. And and we we have to be ready to do that seven times seventy. Because we walk in forgiveness. If you don't walk in forgiveness, their hate, their anger is going to stick in you. It's going to get in your spiritual gut. This depression can cause a decline of uh, physical well-being. But there's a lot of things that can do that. Poor diet can do that. Lack of physical uh, activity can do that. Your endocrine dysfunction can be caused from inadequate sunlight, exposure, sleep, your sleep habits. When you go to sleep, you know, you're sitting there playing on your devices, looking at your computer and you don't get enough sleep. And then the sleep you get is unsatisfactory because you, when you go to bed, you're taking all that garbage that has accumulated in you. And it didn't just come in through diet, <laughs> you know, you know, like a Scrooge who was thinking that the spirits that he was seeing, how do I know you're not a piece of moldy cheese that I ate? <laughs> so you, you're taking that with you. Like Marley's change, you're dragging that with you. Forgiveness starts unloading those. Helping others will start lifting the burdens that you're dragging around with you. you your toxic social environment, people talk about that, can, can bring depression. In, in, increase of competition. Uh, because you're going up against people that are better than you or stronger than you or smarter than you, you feel helpless. So then this can bring depression. A feeling of inequality. A woe is me. That The victim mentality. I mean, you're going to have a tremendous amount of uh, depression, anxiety, and violent behavior from people who are swallowing this idea that because of the skin, my skin color, I'm a victim. Uh, this is going to have a terrible toxic effect on their society. It already is. We see it. All that can go away if we were to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, we have this social isolation, which is what uh, racism is all about. That we isolate this part of society from that part of society. And it's easy to do because we can see the difference on the outside of this person. On the inside, we're dealing with the same problems. We have a physical gut and we're feeding it all kinds of garbage. But we're also feeding our spiritual gut all kinds of garbage. And those hundreds of millions of brain cells that are in our physical gut are being affected by what we eat and by what we think and by the the soul in us that dwells in there. And there are all kinds of parasitical spirits. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, the parasitical spirits. And we will give as an example the parasites of society that in the physical world that are actually causing people to commit suicide. People are actually committing suicide because they pick up a, a parasite. Can you believe that? We'll talk about that when we come back. Well, welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Jesus talked about, can't you see, you know, read the signs in the weather? Questioning whether they could see the signs in the spiritual realm of our existence. Because that's part of the context of our existence. 
we have a physical realm all around us. We also have a spiritual realm all around us because we live in a multi-dimensional universe. And so when we look out into the physical realm around us, we can actually see things like uh, intestinal parasites that can get into you and affect your health and your your body. I mean, there are worms, there's giardia, uh, giardia duodenals, giardia intestinalis, uh, which are protozoans, uh, parasites living in the intestines, and they can have an effect on your health. They can actually have an effect on causing depression uh, because of the fact that, remember, the little brain is living in the walls of your intestines, and they're in there uh, infecting things. You know, in, in... your intestines, you have bacteria living there naturally. And they've actually discovered that the bacteria that lives in your intestines naturally can actually signal your body through chemistry that bacteria, not you, the bacteria living in there, will signal the body that you need more serotonin or other things. They're sending out signals to your body that you need more of this and more of that. And of course, the serotonin is stored in the intestines. is the body releasing that serotonin in your body to do all kinds of other things that they haven't yet discovered. They've discovered that the microorganisms in your intestine are actually communicating with your body, giving your body a heads up as to what they need next. It's helping your body develop the chemistry it needs to take up the nutrients that you're consuming and also to reject the nutrients or or, or the chemistry that you do not need in your body. Your intestines are making choices for you. All the cells in your intestines are making choices for you, connected to the brain. And, and, you know, like suddenly if you get something in your intestines that you shouldn't have in there, the the intestines will suddenly say, we got to get this stuff out of here. And lo and behold, you get the stuff out of there. (laughs) So these uh, guardia can cause chronic fatigue syndrome. In other words, it can stop the uptake of nutrients into your body that makes you feel fatigued. You're not getting the nutrition, nutrition out of your, through your intestinal wall that you should be getting to. It could be causing inflammation. It could be doing all sorts of things. It can also cause irritable bowel syndrome. In other words, you're going to have a process with uh, sudden, spontaneous uh, elimination. We'll put it in those terms. <laughs> and so, this is caused by the presence of this one simple little protozoan in your intestines. There's millions of them. There's all kinds of them. There's one of them that I always thought was fascinating in the study of parasites. Uh, was Toxoplasma gondii, which is a little parasite that lives in the intestines of cats. They, they, it dwells in cats, reproduces cats, passes out through the cat's system, and mice can get infected by this little Toxoplasma gondii, little parasite. And it will actually affect the mind of the mouse. So the mouse loses his inhibitions, actually goes up and challenges what he normally would be afraid of and flee from, which is the cat. And he is devoured by the cat. Now the Toxoplasma gondii is in the cat again, ends up in his intestines and reproduces. So this is the life cycle of this parasite. It goes from the cat to the mouse, to the mouse, to the cat, to the cat, to the mouse. And guess what? It can also go to people. So they've actually done studies. They knew that Toxoplasma, they say about a third of the people in, in the world 
are infected with this kind of parasite. And uh, they did a study in Holland, uh, I think it was in Holland, uh, Netherlands, where they were examining pregnant women. This is a problem in pregnant women because they can actually pass this Toxoplasma gondii onto their child. And your body will produce natural uh, process of fighting off this infestation. But the child's body doesn't really have the ability to to fight that off. Not always. It's 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 weak until about you know the third or fourth week or fourth month of the child's life. Then it starts developing an ability to fight off such infestations. And of course, because it's a cycle thing, it it will pass out of the body. Although there there you know the, some of these parasites can get into other parts of the body, not just the intestines. They can get into the brain and everything else. And Toxoplasma gondii is one of those that can get into the brain because it affects the brain of the mouse. It can get past that blood-brain barrier. So, okay, they found that a lot of women had this infestation of Toxoplasma gondii. They probably got it either from poor hygiene, mice in the house, or cats, uh, or a combination of the two. And they picked up this infestation. And they just they did the blood tests of the women who were pregnant because they were coming in because it's all socialist medicine over there. And they found that women had infestation of this Toxoplasma gondii. And they had degrees of infestation because their body is also fighting it off. And so they they knew it was present in there. And there are ways to treat it. But, of course, some of these treatments are difficult when a woman is pregnant. But they then they were able to follow up the history of those people that they found were heavily infested with this parasite. And guess what they found? That there was a 54% increase in the amount of violent suicides amongst, you know, this is months and months later, amongst women who had Toxoplasma gondii infestations when they were pregnant. 54% likely to commit suicide. Violent suicide. Now, that's interesting, the violent suicide. Because now people say, well, what's a non-violent suicide? Well, pills. They were more likely to hang themselves, shoot themselves, or kill themselves and you know, jump off a bridge, which then they were... And it was just like the mouse who goes up and confronts the cat. He's committing suicide because he has Toxoplasma gondii in his brain. <laughs> And so, now, people don't like this. You know, I mean, scientists say, well, there's no, we can't prove any that's actually affecting their thoughts. Well, what they're saying is that we haven't yet proven. But the interesting thing about the statistic that they were collecting is that the people with heavier and heavier infestations, because they could tell the degree of the infestation of this little tiny protozoa in their body, which you could have and not even know you have it. You know, I don't want everybody going out and getting rid of their cat immediately. I would get your cat off the counter. <laughs> I would wash your hands, but heck, Moses told you to do that thousands of years ago. But there, and I would not let the cat sleep with the new baby. Okay, <laughs> so anyway, and all cats don't necessarily have this Toxoplasma gondii, but they are susceptible to it, and it is it is a cat mouse mammal cycle. But anyway, those with higher and higher infestations, they found that the likelihood of violent suicide went up to 91% more likely to commit violent suicide. That's pretty significant amongst those with higher and higher infestations. So even though they can't, you know, 
directly connect these two statistically, it's worth looking at. So anyway, so now what are the solutions to this? Because actually, the healthier your immune system, the more likely your immune system will fight off the Taxoplasma gondii by itself. And uh, and it's a cyclical thing, so, you know, avoiding reinfestation is important. Just the act of washing your hands, just the act of cleaning up, you know, uh, Professor Peterson, one of his 12 rules to end chaos in society, is one of them is to get up in the morning and make your bed, which is just a way of saying, you know, put your house in order. You know, hygiene is a good thing. But the willingness to turn that idea of hygiene into practical actions has a spiritual effect because you, it's empowering you to do something about the major culprit in your life. You. <laughs> You're trying to do something about your sloth of not taking care of things. And sloth is... When you want to know why you're in bondage in the world, whether it's bondage to food, bondage to drugs, bondage to governments, bondage to any kind of addiction, bondage to religion, false religion, because that's a bondage too. It's an opiate too. And, and so what do you do about overcoming that bondage? And, and And how did you get into that bondage? One of the major causes is sloth. The other one is covetous practices. Those are, those are two of the major causes of bondage in the world today. Remember, everything in the world has a spiritual existence and a physical existence. So if you're physically in bondage to the governments of the world that are taking, you know, that are, that have enslaved you, that take away 20, 30, 40, 50% of your, your life, it's because you're already in a spiritual state of bondage. And if you change, what I'm saying is that if you change that spiritual state of bondage, if you repent, if you think a different way, your mind, your soul being connected intimately, that it will begin to have a an effect throughout your existence. It will lead to you being set free. And one of those things is, you know, make your bed, put your house in order. Take a look at your diet. Take a look at how you care about other people. Stop thinking, what can I do for me? And start thinking about what you can do for others. Gather together in a group because a group will bring a certain objectivity to your walk that you by yourself don't always bring to your walk. You think you're pretty cool. You think you're pretty smart. You think you've got it figured out already. You think you're already saved. Maybe. Maybe not. But by, you know, online, you don't have to confront other people. You know, you can you can unfriend them on Facebook if they say something you don't like. But in real life, if you have to sit down with the same people, they're eventually... I mean, it's like children. You know, man thinks he is wise, let him marry. Because by the nature of a woman, she's going to bring up where he is lacking. <laughs> she's going to let you know that you're not always right. Eventually. I mean, when you're courting, you're always right. You know, she thinks you're the greatest thing on her. But later on, you're going to wear a little thin on her. And she's going to let you know, I don't think you're right. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's why she's there. Help you, you know. I always told a joke about, you know, God put man in the Garden of Eden and everything. And then one day God was walking and looked in man's refrigerator and said, 
it's not right that man be alone. Because <laughs> he's making a mess. So anyway, the the reality is, is the woman is there not just to be your slave. She's there to test the metal of what you're made of and to get you to rise to the occasion. Well, God has another invention besides the woman. It's called children. If a man thinks he is wise, let him marry. If a man thinks he is patient, let him have children. If a man thinks he is saved, put him in a congregation. Because you're going to find out you're not nearly as saved as you thought you were. Because you're you're going to have to develop the patience of Christ, the caring, the sacrifice of Christ, the long-suffering of Christ, the charity of Christ who laid down his life for you. Anybody you lay down your life for lately? I mean, besides your children and your wife and your husband? No. So what grace have you if you only love those who are supposed to love you? You need to gather in a congregation, not because they love you, but because they don't know how to love yet. They're infested with all kinds of parasites. They're causing them to not gather together. They don't want you to gather together. They want you to have social isolation. They want you to feel unequal. Whether you feel you're better or you feel you're worse. Everybody thinks depression is the bad problem. Vanity. There's the problem. (laughs) It's not that you think you're terrible that's the big problem. It's the fact that you think you're great is the big problem. Uh, And the fact is you're somewhere in between. You're not as great as you think. You're not as bad off as you think. What can make you better? God can make you better. So, but it has to be the real God. And, uh, so I, you know, I was listening to, you know, in preparing for this, dealing with this depression thing, because it's killing people. It's making their lives a hell. It's destroying society. But depression and anxiety is just a symptom of something that goes much deeper. We, we think that, you know, the, the unchurched movement, they want to get out of, the institutional church. And I understand that because the institutional church today is not doing what the institutional church used to do. Uh, Not in any way, shape, or form. And so therefore, it seems hollow. It's not satisfactory. So the people come out of that and then they walk alone. They they go their own way and they they try to figure out. But then they find because of the gregarious nature of man that they they need fellowship with other people. So they want to come together but they don't want to be vulnerable like that little group of people with a depression problem trembling to actually speak. So they create they create things like Facebook that makes you feel like, oh, I've got 157 friends on Facebook. They're not real friends. You know, some of them might be. But because they're on Facebook, they're not friends. Because you guys all meet in a pizza parlor and you all have a good time together and share a few beers or soda pops or whatever... And it makes you feel good and it satisfies this craving for gregarious fellowship. That doesn't mean you're saved. That doesn't mean any of these people will lay down their life for you. You're not, you're not there to lay down your life for them. Why do you, would you think that they're there to lay their life down for you? They're there because they want to feel fellowship too. And so it's a mutual back scratching society. It has nothing to do with, Christ didn't come here to scratch your back. He didn't come here to just be your slave either. Christ came here that you might be saved. You need a steady diet of Christ. You need to start eating at the table of Christ. You know what Christ is going to serve you? He's going to serve you up a dish of truth. And you need to be able to eat the truth about yourself. 
receive the truth about yourself. I mean, it's easy to find the faults in everybody else. You can sit back there on Facebook and you can be a social warrior and you can find all kinds of faults with everybody else. But what about yourself? What about your sloth? What about your avarice? What about your vanity? What about your pride? I mean, depression we can see as a problem. But feeling that you're saved when you aren't doing what Christ said, that's a big problem too. So you want to gather together. Now, you don't have to gather in one single room. You have to gather in one single spirit. And if you gather in one single room at a big feast and everybody's having a good time and everything, although we always have some people that come and they want to cause trouble, because they're carrying trouble around. They want to unload their trouble. They want to get it off their chest. They want to get it off their back. They don't necessarily want to get it off their chest. That kind of intimates the idea that they want to admit they got a problem. They'll admit other people got problems. Oh, these people got problems. These people got problems. You know, these people, they don't get it. But are they looking at themselves? You know, because everywhere they go, everybody's got problems. And they can make a habit, an addiction of looking at everybody else's problems. But that was one of the things about putting that group together where they were all depressed is that they all had the same problem. There probably was a lot of one-upsmanship, well, you know, where they were saying, well, I get so depressed that I do this. And somebody else says, well, I get so depressed I do this. (laughs) And my depression is greater than your depression. I mean, it's like my religion is better than your religion. They haven't really got the right spirit yet, but ultimately you need to get that. So are there other things that we can do? You know, the, the, you know, your diet. Should you be taking probiotics to get a healthier gut? Uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't hurt probably. Uh, it's, it's way different than taking antidepressants. Now, if you're taking antidepressants now, coming off of them is, is, should not be done alone. You need to do it with other people. Even, even with your doctor, if you, if you have a doctor, you can tell your doctor, I want to get off this. Or you can find a doctor who will help you get off of it. Because uh, there are doctors out there who see that there's a problem with this. So you have to shop around a little bit. If, you, if you're beginning to wake up to that fact. So you want to start eating right. You want to start exercising. You, you, you want to, and a lot of times, you, you know, I, I see these people, that they join this group or that group, and they have to pay $700 a month because they're going to lose weight. And I, I know them 25, 30 years later, they still haven't lost weight. You know, and I teased them once. I says, well, for $700, this was years ago, for $700, I'll stand in front of your refrigerator with a baseball bat, and you won't eat. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, is that you do need some moral support in dealing with these things. You need the encouragement sometimes, but you also need to be encouraging others, because your biggest problem is selfishness. You 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 fear judgment by coming together in a group. You don't want to be judged by others. Well, why don't you stop judging others and come together? And if other people judge you, forgive them. That's an opportunity knocking when people are doing the wrong thing to you. So you don't get in a congregation because it's perfect. You don't gather with people. And so, yeah, everybody's spread out. And you don't. Why don't you gather together? I, mean, I just saw a discussion just before we came on the air where people are trying to get me on other radio programs, other radio broadcasts. And... uh the fact is, if I get on those broadcasts, we may find other people that are looking to unload their, you know, and, and to escape their, the hell that their life has become. And they're, they're actually not just looking at escaping the hell, but they're looking for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because you got to be looking for both. If you're only looking to feel good, but you're not looking to be good, that's not enough. 
you have to be looking to be a servant to other people, to be of help to other people. So they're, they're, they're saying, well, how do we get him on these radio programs so that he can get this message out? Well, you know, you have to work together. You could be doing that in every single congregation. You could be dividing up the load. Does everybody have to go listen to every single radio program that I could be a guest on? Well, no. You, you find the list of the people that are having these programs. You find out what they're talking about. I mean, a lot of times they have a list of programs they've already had and you find out, well, Greg, Brother Gregory's got an article that gives you the solution to this problem, whether it's depression or, or whatever. So write him and says, I heard your program that, uh, you talked about this and this and this. You should have Brother Gregory on because he has a real solution. And you, you can tell him this is the kingdom of heaven. You can, you can give him my real name, Gregory Williams. You could do anything and get, and he's got a website, Preparing You. If you think he's, if he's absolutely against religion, you can use Preparing You. If you think he's actually for religion and, and wants to talk about godly things, you can use his holy church and get me on the program. And then I will get out there and other people's show and talk about the network and bring him to the network. You can talk to other people in your own community. You start, what you really have to do is start listening to the Holy Spirit and doing what the Holy Spirit is telling you. But then you can start bringing more and more people into these congregations. And the more congregations you start, and the more ministers you pick, because we're going to start training. I spent hours and hours of this last week putting together things where we can start training ministers and understanding the free church. And, of course, we've got 35 hours of recordings on the free church that we've just put up in the, the last 35 weeks uh, explaining, you know, what Christ was actually doing, how he's organizing the people. Now, you need a combination of the physical reality of organizing people, even if you do it with phone calls and phone congregations, but you also need the spiritual elements coming into play because it's left foot, right foot journey. You need them both equally. So, yeah, there's lots of different things that you could be doing, and uh, we're going to be talking about it more and more. I haven't even gotten halfway through the notes on this stuff, but there is real solutions And if you come together, God will show you the way. Until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.